Should you cut out all sugar? Gary Taubes says absolutely. He joins us to talk about his new book, The Case Against Sugar. The evidence that it is accelerating your demise in some awful ways is compelling enough that you should at least experiment. What made Casanova more than just a famed libertine? Anthony Gottlieb will tell us about Lawrence Burgreen's new book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. He was a great uh, adventurer, an enormous traveler, constantly racing across uh, Europe in coaches. Mixed with all levels of society, was involved in finance. He, for example, founded and ran the French National Lottery. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Gary Talves joins us now to talk about his new book, The Case Against Sugar. Gary, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, your previous book was Why We Get Fat. Was it a logical progression from fat to sugar? Yes. It clearly, uh, there have been a series of progressions because the first book was Good Calories, Bad Calories. It was kind of a dense tome looking at the dietary triggers of chronic diseases in the world, uh, mm-hmm. obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And we had this idea that it's dietary fat. And I discussed where that came from and found out where it came from and then sort of slowly converged on this idea that was an alternative hypothesis that the primary problem with modern Western diets is the carbohydrate content, refined Mm -hmm. grains and sugars. And why we get fat was, in effect, the airplane-reading polemical version of good calories, bad calories, because I had people writing me saying, you know, this book changed my life, but it's unreadable. <laughs> Could <laughs> it's you... good to write a book that's, that can be read. Yeah, exactly. So uh, after I wrote it, a friend in New York sent me an email saying he was on his f- flying to the Caribbean, and he read it on the plane, and it was like, yes. What's so bad about sugar? Well, potentially everything. Um, okay, what's so good about it? Let's start with, you know. Yeah, does it have a positive side? Clearly it brings us an enormous amount of joy, although the first chapter is addressing this question of whether we should think of it as a drug or a food. There's a lot of discussion lately about whether it's addictive. In that, I like to fall back on something the journalist historian Charles Mann wrote, and he's a friend, and he captured in 18 words what I captured in 4,000 in my first chapter. He said, scientists debate amongst themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or we just act like it is. Mm-hmm. And clearly, it's addictive enough that we act like it is. I mean, uh, what, what are the signs that would lead one to think it's addictive? Uh, well, it's clearly got psychoactive properties. Um, you know, it's a very effective painkiller in children. It triggers the same part of the brain, the nucleus accumbens, known as the reward center, that the drugs of abuse trigger. Although, as another friend points out, when you buy shoes, you also trigger that same part of your brain. So um, people, one of the definitions, one of the, the signs of official signs of addiction is when you continue to do something and can't stop after you believe it's causing you harm. Mm -hmm. And clearly the world is full of people who wish they could give up sugar, whether I'm right about what I say in my book or not, and can't. So, and when you look at the history, uh, populations, just like people basically, uh, populations will consume as much as they can afford. And as the prices come way down over the centuries, you know, by a Several orders of magnitude, sugar consumption has gone up. And, uh, you know, in the late 1960s, a former uh, 
uh, Food and Agriculture Organization administrator was saying, you know, clearly populations consume sugar until they begin to become obese and diabetic. And then the question is, does it cause obesity and diabetes? Okay, so let's get back to that original, what's so bad about sugar? One, obesity. To diabetes. Well, so the question is, we have obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide. It's Mm -hmm. a pandemic. In October, the Director General of the World Health Organization at an annual meeting of the National Academies of Science described it as a slow-motion disaster. And she said that there was virtually zero chance that public health organizations like the WHO will be able to curb this, will be able to make a bad situation, prevent a bad situation from getting worse. The question is, what's triggering those epidemics? Okay, that's the question I'm addressing, and that's the crime that's being committed anywhere in the world, regardless of the baseline diet a population is eating, whether it's all animal products like the Inuit or an agrarian population, mostly plants like Michael Pollan says we should be eating. You add the concomitants of a Western diet, you end up with sooner or later with obesity and diabetes epidemics. The conventional wisdom is we just eat too much. It's too much food available. We become sedentary, and that's what causes it. I've been arguing in all my books that that's almost incomprehensibly naive and that sugar is the prime suspect in this book because it creates it's, – there's a lot of evidence, and it's not definitive – that it triggers a condition called insulin resistance, which is a fundamental defect in the common form of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. It's so closely associated with obesity that we can assume it's causal, or at least propose that it's Mm -hmm. causal. It's a step on the way to heart disease. So CDC today says 75 million Americans have what's called metabolic syndrome, Mm -hmm. and that's, in effect, insulin resistance syndrome. And sugar is the prime suspect. So you add sugar to any diet. There's this I'm proposing in this book, and you end up with obesity, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and pushing it. Cancer and Alzheimer's are both diseases that associate with insulin resistance. Hmm. So if sugar causes insulin resistance, then... They at least it at least exacerbates or increases your risk of contracting many cancers and dementia. Okay, not that that's not enough in and of itself, but is there <laughs> anything else wrong with sugar we should know about? Uh, bad for your teeth? Yes. Beyond that, well, one of the subtexts of this book, and in places I discuss it explicitly, there's a remarkable absence of research on the possible deleterious consequences of sugar consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1970s, when things kind of reached a fever pitch, there were a lot of physicians who believed that sugar caused diabetes. There was a very influential British nutritionist named John Yudkin arguing that it's the prime suspect for heart disease. Research community in the U.S. believed dietary fat was a problem, Mm -hmm. and obsessively so, and the sugar industry basically used the anti-fat consensus to in suppress this anti-sugar movement. And in doing so, they postponed research on sugar for about 20 years. So research that we just started doing in 10 years ago should have been done 30 years ago. None of these questions can be answered definitively. Right. That's why the book is called The Case Against Sugar. It's the prosecution's argument. 
And I don't know if I can get a conviction. Um, But you bring up something else, which is raises the kind of skeptic question, you know, well, it's always some culprit. First, it was saturated fat and then it was, you know, gluten and then it's artificial colors and flavors. and, And now it's sugar. And, you know, what can you eat when you eliminate all of these things? To me, this is uh, an effect of the bad nutrition science of the last 50 years. So clearly we have a world of people who are obese and diabetic, Mm -hmm. and many to most of them are trying to address it by changing their diets, and they're failing. If they weren't failing, right, we wouldn't have a world of people who are obese and diabetic. So then the question is, what causes this? Like a crime has been committed. Mm-hmm. You know, one of uh, – go back, I always think of the O.J. case, maybe because I lived in L.A. From Once O.J. got uh, acquitted, I mean, somebody killed his ex-wife. It wasn't, doesn't matter that we thought it was O.J. If he didn't do it, who did? Right. So in this case, we blame the problems on eating too much and sedentary behavior and dietary fat. And if they didn't do it, and we have a world of people who have been eating low-fat diets and exercising while they've gotten obese and diabetic. So if it's not eating too much and saturated fat, what is it? And again, it's, it's unfortunate that every week it appears to be something new. It's unfortunate that if you want to take diet advice, you might think about taking it from a journalist rather than the American Heart Association. These are all situations that I think are a result of the bad science that I discuss in this book. What do we know about sugar's effect on the brain, and is that a concern? Well, um, again, there are two ways to think about it. One is, is this, you know, is it addictive? Right. And is through stimulating the dopamine secretion in the nucleus accumbens, does it create a a vicious feedback loop that has you craving more and more sugar. And again, the research, we can tell you what happens in rats and laboratory mice. It's ethical to do this research. You can't stuff a human being full of sugar and find out what happens. And worse, you can. You can stuff a human being full of sugar. You can't stuff a child full of sugar and experiment with whether or not it's more addictive than cocaine to the child. So, and again, if you have children... I don't know how much science you need to question the hypothesis that sugar cravings are a very powerful right. phenomenon. And then you see the sugar rush and the yeah. sugar crash, right? Are those real things? Is there a science behind that? You know, it's, uh, again, interesting. Back in the 80s, there was some very good research done on this question. Apparently, what looks like very good research, asking this question whether sugar causes hyperactivity, mm-hmm. and they concluded no. And they pretty good studies from, you know, reading it. You don't know what they really did. We know what they wrote down, what they did. And what they did is they would take kids and they would give them either a sugary beverage or an artificially sweetened beverage, and the kids wouldn't know which one they were getting, and the parents wouldn't know which one they got, and then they would send them home. And the mothers would report back about whether they saw the sugar crash or the hyperactivity, and it was unrelated to the whether or not the kids got the sugary beverages or the artificial sweeteners. So that killed the hyperactivity hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Again, if you're a parent, it's fairly clear. But again, my wife points out now that when my son has a tantrum and doesn't eat sugar, I don't really <laughs> pay attention to it. I only pay attention to it when I know he's had sugar. And you can sugar blame it on the lollipop. Yeah, exactly. So again, and this is why you do clinical trials. Very little research, very little good research, certainly. The second question is the dementia question. Mm -hmm. So if sugar causes insulin resistance, the last two chapters, the second and third to last chapters of the book are 
the if-then chapter. So if-then problem one, if-then problem two. If-then problem two is if sugar causes insulin resistance, if it's the dietary factor that triggers insulin resistance, then it's triggering diabetes and probably obesity. Again, the common form of diabetes known as type 2. These are both associated with an increased risk of dementia, Alzheimer's and um, stroke-related dementia. And there are a whole host of mechanisms by which dysregulating the signaling of this hormone insulin could influence cognitive behavior and potentially lead to Alzheimer's mm -hmm. or at least to stroke-related dementia that is diagnosed as Alzheimer's or manifests with Alzheimer's. And there's the clinical trials haven't been done to straighten it out. One of the things I'm doing in this book is, like I said, the prosecution's argument. I'm saying, here's the case. Mm -hmm. And it's a legit, I hope the heck it's a legitimate case. And as such, I'm trying to push the research community to doing the work necessary to answer these questions. When we talk about sugar, are some sugars better than others? Some innocent? So when we're, I'm talking about sugar, and I clarify this in the very first chapter because you have to get it straight, but when we're talking about the white powdery stuff, crystalline stuff that we put, on put in our coffee and put on our cereal, that's sucrose. Sucrose is a molecule of glucose, which is carbohydrate, bonded to a molecule of fructose. And it's the fructose that makes it sweet. Fructose is the sweetest carbohydrate, and fructose is found naturally in fruit and you know, maybe I think 6% of an apple, 6% of the calories is fructose, and a few percent is sucrose. Um, when we eat starches, we break them down into glucose alone. And so the glucose goes into your bloodstream, you metabolize in virtually every cell in your body. The fructose gets metabolized in your liver. When we talk about high fructose corn syrup, the kind that's most common is known as HFCS55. It's supposed to be 55% fructose and 45% glucose. So sugar, sucrose is 50-50. Mm -hmm. High fructose corn syrup is 55-45. The body pretty much treats them as though they're identical. You can argue, and people have, that the extra 5% fructose is more of a problem. What I'm discussing in this book is whether or not they're both a problem. Fructose, like I said, it's metabolized in the liver, so it doesn't raise your blood sugar from the... 80s onward, researchers, diabetes authorities thought maybe sugar is good for you because the fructose doesn't raise your blood sugar. You don't have to secrete insulin to deal with it. Um, again, the research doesn't exist to tell us. But if sugar is bad, as I'm proposing in this book, the reason it's bad is because the glucose raises blood sugar, stimulates insulin secretion, while the fructose is being metabolized in the liver and some very good biochemists who have studied this. This is what they would argue. And that combination is what causes this condition, causes insulin resistance, and then all these other diseases that follow. So if you had like three sentences, say, in which to persuade people to give up sugar entirely, what would you say? What's the argument? Well, the evidence that it is accelerating your demise in some awful ways is compelling enough that you should at least experiment with giving up sugar. And certainly the added sugars that are easy to give up, the sodas and sweets, and I think do it for long enough that the cravings start to go away and you can really 
understand what life without sugar is like. All right. Well, not too late to start with your New Year's resolutions. Gary Taubes, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. The book, again, is The Case Against Sugar. Alexandra Alter joins us now to let us know what's going on in the wider world of books. Alexandra, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we've got good news and bad news. There's good news and bad news for uh, the retail book market. One little bit of bad news is that the beloved independent store Crawford Doyle, which is a bookstore in Manhattan, is closing. Why? You know, I imagine it has to do with the rent yeah. and, and the This profit. is an Upper East Side. Yes, yes. And um, even though, you know, Manhattan is, is the heart of the publishing industry and is um, considered to be a very bookish borough of greater New York, it's been really difficult for bookstores, for independent stores to stay open in Manhattan just to sort of meet the rent requirement. Also recently, we saw the news that Court Street Books in Brooklyn would be closing, and that's a very, very beloved independent store. There is a plan to replace it with another one in the neighborhood by the novelist Emma Straub. She worked at Court Street while she was getting her writing career going and plans to open an independent store, so that is exciting. And in other major bookstore news, Amazon is opening a physical retail store in Manhattan later this year. The Wall Street Journal reported this this week. And they've been, you know, expanding their brick-and-mortar operation around the country. They started in Seattle, where they're headquartered, and also opened a store in San Diego. But opening a store in Manhattan, I think, is a is an interesting move. A bold it's move. Very bold. Amazon has often had sort of testy or antagonistic relationships with publishers. Of course, publishers depend on them and sell a ton of books that way. But some publishers are resentful of the kind of um, monopoly that Amazon has over over book sales. And there was that whole war that they had with Hachette Books over ebook prices, which was resolved. Um, so by, you know, by opening up shop right in Manhattan, they'll be blocks away from Penguin Random House and Little Brown and Simon & Schuster. So it's it's interesting to see them sort of planting a flag here. Do they carry their own Amazon published imprints in their stores? I believe they do, but it's not the predominant kind of merchandise that you're seeing. I think what's different about them, they carry fewer books than a lot of other bookstores because they put them all face out, right. cover out. That's one of their sort of ways of making it look more inviting. It also looks a little bit more like the Amazon homepage. When you're searching for books on there, you see the cover, not the spine. But I suppose the way they approach things that's a bit different from other bookstores, and I think we've talked about this before, is they claim to draw on the wisdom of their customers. So right. books that are really well-reviewed, um, that have a lot of five-star reviews, might get prominent placement in Amazon the same way you might see um, you know, a book that was a New York Times bestseller get prominent placement in another store. Presumably they mine all of the data that they have about book buying habits online and use that exactly. in the retail environment. Do they sell things like greeting cards and potpourri and reading lamps and that sort of thing? I don't believe so. I haven't, you know, I'm looking forward to actually checking this out when they open here because I haven't been to the one in Seattle or elsewhere. The thing that I think also distinguishes them from other bookstores is that they do sell their own Amazon devices. You can you can play with the Amazon Echo, which is their voice-controlled speaker. You can check out a newer generation of a Kindle and all these devices that I think they're you know, hoping the public will acquire because once you have those devices, you tend to shop more on Amazon. And when do we get to do those things? 
Later this year is the very vague uh, date that I saw in various news reports. Well, I expect many people will be visiting that store, if not to buy things, also out of curiosity. Exactly. And it's prominently located in the Time Warner Center right at Columbus Circle. All right. Well, keep an eye out for the store then. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks, Pamela. Anthony Gottlieb joins us now to talk about his review of a new biography of Casanova called Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius by Lawrence Burgreen. Anthony, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So everyone knows the name Casanova, but I think knows little about him. Who was he? People associate him almost entirely with uh, sex uh, and maybe romance. And there is a good reason uh, for that. But he was a lot more than that. He was a great uh, adventurer, an enormous traveler, constantly racing across uh, Europe in coaches, mixed with all levels of society, was involved in finance. He, for example, founded and ran the French National Lottery, which he also... That was one of the most astonishing facts to me. (laughs) Yes, I suppose it's related to the fact that he was a gambler, but also his ingenuity and intelligence. He he got an advanced degree, a doctorate at a, a very early age in law. He was really quite a literary prodigy, and he wrote on all sorts of subjects. But, of course, what he's best known for writing is the account of his life, the uh, very explicit account of his life, which is why people, um, I suppose, associate him with sex and romance. But I don't think we even know the basics. I mean, he was born a peasant. Where was he born and when? Well, not exactly a peasant. But so his, uh, he was born in, in Venice in 1725. Um, his mother was an actress. The man who was generally taken to be his father also was an actor, worked in the theatre. Casanova thought that his real father was a member of the patrician uh, class in uh, Venice who owned the theatre where his parents worked. And I think most biographers think that this was indeed his uh, his father. He showed uh, prodigious uh, literary ability and intellectual abilities early on, so he was given a a good education and uh, therefore destined for the church, which is what happened in those days if you were a bright, and he stuck with that for a bit, but uh, not not for very long. How unusual was it for someone who was the son of an actor's, possibly illegitimate uh, son of an actor, to kind of rise up, I guess, in a certain way to the extent that he did. To the extent that he did, uh, almost unparalleled. I mean, he was mixing with heads of state, uh, popes, uh, great writer Rousseau, Mozart, uh, among the people uh, that he met. He had a very high opinion of himself from a literary point of view. He couldn't understand why uh, Voltaire and Goethe were sort of better known for their writings than he was, for example. <laughs> he met an amazing number of people, really wide range, everyone from Ben Franklin to Catherine the Great. Did he write about those encounters or how do we know about them? Uh, he did write about uh, quite a lot of them, although his uh, his memoirs, which he was writing at the end of his life, and he died before he got to the end, so there's a fair bit of his life that, that wasn't in the memoirs. 24 years or something, right? Yes, yeah, something like that. Um, 
No, we, we rely on accounts from others. One thing that might naturally uh, occur to a reader of his memoirs, especially given all the enormous amount of sort of intimate sexual detail, is how much of this is actually true and, and what is he making up. It wasn't until about the 1960s that really authoritative, trustworthy versions of his memoirs came out. They were expurgated uh, and interpolated. At that point in the 60s, uh, scholars started uh, looking at it as a historical document and trying to check what they could. And they found that basically, as far as people can tell, um, it's all true. So tell me about his encounter with Rousseau. Well, he went to see Rousseau with um, a very unusual lady, the Marquise d'Orfay, one of the richest uh, women in France, who uh, was an absolute fruitcake uh, as far as her interests in the occult go. Casanova was basically tricking her over several years. He was tricking her out of her, her money, but... Um, in the course of charming her, they went on all sorts of trips together and they decided to go and visit Rousseau and came away thinking that he was uh, a very silly man, a very eccentric man. They came away uh, laughing about him, which, of course, uh, many people did in those days. It sounds like she was someone that you could kind of laugh at, too. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yes. Um, so perhaps it was mutual. Why does Lawrence Bergerin, who is a, an established biographer, why did he write this book about Casanova now? You said that, that in the 60s is sort of when they went yes. through the, the diaries. Was there new research that came out or had there never been a kind of full-length uh, There have been full-length uh, biographies in many languages, including English. I would say you know, roughly every decade there is a new biography of Casanova because he is such a fascinating subject. Mr. Bergreen plainly has done uh, a great deal of research. I don't know if there are any sort of great new uh, discoveries there, but he's certainly gone and checked and acquainted himself with everything. And it's one thing that's unusual about this biography compared with others in English in recent decades is that it lets Casanova use his own words to a considerable extent. I mean, an awful lot of it is direct quotation from Casanova, which is very useful for readers because... You know, I think Casanova's memoirs are a great read. Uh, it is about 3,000 pages, and few people are going to do that. Uh, with this book, you get a lot of Casanova's own words. He's also, um, as you mentioned, a real uh, writer, and that he wrote uh, poems, a translation of Homer, librettos, some pamphlets on mathematics, historical studies on Poland and Venice, and I think the most surprising thing, a five-volume work of science fiction set in the Earth's interior. Yes. Uh, now, I, I have not read this book myself. Uh, and, is it still, uh, is it available? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did look around it, but I couldn't find one. And in all the books I've, I've read about Casanova, none of them give any solid evidence of having read this book mm -hmm. uh, themselves. So I don't know who has read it. He wrote it quite late in life, uh, I think. It's of uh, prodigious length. It's his histories, I think, that are more approachable. He wrote histories of uh, Venice uh, and also of Poland. And I, I think he thought of himself as a historian. And of course, his own memoir is primarily of value to us as as a history of many of the great cities of, in the 18th, of Europe in the 18th century. We can think of him as a sort of historian. Among his other exploits, um, you mentioned earlier that, of course, he was a kind of prodigy and did many things at a very young age, that he got a doctorate of law when he was 16, but also that he was expelled from a monastery, was a trainee priest for a while, um, had a love affair with a putative castrato, um, who he believed was a girl, and correctly, yes. 
also was imprisoned. Why did he go to prison? He was imprisoned several times. He was always getting the wrong side of the authorities for all sorts of different things. The most famous period of imprisonment and the longest is when he was in the state prison uh, by the Doge's Palace in Venice, known as the Leds. That's one of the two state prisons there. Now, it's not absolutely clear why he was condemned there. He certainly got on the wrong side of a lot of people. The official charge was irreligion and Mm -hmm. impiety. And I think, uh, as I remember, part of the evidence against him was he had various occult books. Now, that was just sort of the excuse. I mean, he got on the wrong side of various people. Now, what's remarkable about that imprisonment is his famous escape from it. He was the first person ever to escape from that prison and and may well remain the only person to have escaped there. And before he wrote his memoirs, he did publish an account of his escape from the prison because wherever he went in the world after that, everybody wanted to hear that story. It was a famous story because it was so difficult to do. I think it was the success of his account of the escape from prison um, that probably encouraged uh, him to think of himself as an important writer and to write his memoirs. How did he escape? First of all, he he sharpened um, a spike. I can't remember how he got hold of this this iron bar. He sharpened a spike and very gradually was uh, making a hole under his bed uh, in the floor uh, to try and drop through to another chamber, and just a couple of nights before he was his hole was ready and he was about to do it, he was moved to another cell. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to come up with another method. Uh, again, I, I believe it involved uh, tunneling. I'm not sure. And uh, he went together with uh, one or two other prisoners. They climbed over the roof at one point, uh, dropped into a chamber, managed to find their way out. So I think the most shocking thing that you write about in your review is that he had an incestuous relationship with his daughter, impregnated her, probably had a threesome with her mother as well. Yes, like what, what's the story here? Certainly had a threesome with the mother. Yes. Well, there, there, there was probably more than one episode of uh, incest with daughters of his. How many children this, did he have? One doesn't really know, but I, probably at least three or four. Mm-hmm. He never, incidentally, showed much interest in getting to know them, uh, except this particular girl who, when he first uh, met her, when she was a young lady, he didn't know uh, she was his daughter. He fell in love with her, and he wanted to marry her. And then the mother revealed who she was. This daughter was married to an old and impotent uh, aristocrat, and she wanted uh, a lover and a child. And Casanova and the mother and the the young lady somehow got themselves into a situation where they thought it was all right for Casanova to be (laughs) the father (laughs) of this child and uh, lover for a while. Now, it's plain that Casanova knew that this was in some sense uh, wrong. How do we know that he knew that it was in some well, sense from the, wrong? From, well, from the way he describes it. It's not mm-hmm. as if he tries to claim, well, you know, there's, there's really nothing to it. It's not so bad after all. I mean, he must have thought that, but he doesn't, he doesn't try to make an argument mm-hmm. that uh, incest is okay. I, I think he was very prone, to, as, he, as he said, to temptation. When he saw something uh, he really liked, it was hard for him not to procure it for himself if he could. Although one important thing to say about him and sex is that he was not a Don Giovanni sort of character. Conquest for its own sake was of no interest to him. He certainly would never 
have been a, a rapist or anything like it. It was very important to him that the the woman should want him. So it was a seduction. He what he wanted to do was to make them want him. Having said that, uh, it's not as if he didn't go in for casual sex as well, because he did. Um, it sounds like Bergreen um, believes that a lot of this behavior had to do with a complicated relationship that Casanova had with his mother. Yes, well, his his mother, who was a traveling actress, was usually away mm-hmm. um, and not in Venice a lot of the time. I think she was in uh, in Germany. Casanova certainly felt a bit abandoned. I think in a, in a few places... Uh, he more or less admits, uh, but he, he really misses his mother and wishes that she was around uh, more. As for making a whole psychological theory out of this and attempting to explain everything uh, about Casanova this way, I don't know. Well, you know, one will one will never really know. Or, or whether it all makes it okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just even knowing the barest details of this life, he sounds like such a fascinating character. How fascinating is the book about Casanova? Is it well done? This particular book. Yes. Yes, it is, absolutely. As I, as I mentioned, uh, one strong point is that it puts so much in Casanova's own words, lets him speak for himself, so you can really see what an enchanting and, uh, and amusing uh, writer that he is. I would recommend people to try and read some of the memoirs uh, as well. There are various abridged versions. I was going to say, I mean, I think you mentioned it was 3,500 handwritten pages. In manuscript, yes. And the standard uh, English complete translation is almost 3,000 pages, although admittedly they're rather small ones. All right. Well, plenty to read about Casanova, whether in his own words or in the words of his most recent biographer, Lawrence Bergreen. The book, again, is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius, and it's reviewed this week by Anthony Gottlieb. Anthony, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. John Williams and Greg Coles join us now to talk about what we and other people are reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. All right. Let's talk about the other people. Well, uh, we're still in the doldrums of the winter hardcover bestseller lists. There is nothing new on the fiction list. Uh, what's old on there, uh, Nicholas Sparks is at number one with uh, his most recent novel, Two by Two. John Grisham's on there, James Patterson, all the familiar names. There are two new titles on the nonfiction list. Um Sad and New Year's resolutions. Right? <laughs> That's exactly right. The New Year's resolutions part comes down at number 15. The Gary Taub's book, The Case Against Sugar, that you were um, talking about earlier on the podcast, uh, makes its debut on, in nonfiction at number 15. And then the sad, uh, up at number one, Carrie Fisher's final book, uh, presumably The Princess Diarist. It's actually a book that came out late in November and didn't make a lot of noise when it did. It hit the combined nonfiction list for one week, um, very low on the list. It is based on diaries that she kept when she was 19 years old um, and on the set of the original Star Wars movie. She reproduces um, facsimiles, uh, facsimile pages of, of some of those diary entries and then comments on what it was like going through the filming of that movie. 
it kind of passed people by when it came out. But then, of course, with her death just after Christmas, um, everyone has taken new note of it. And boom, there it is, number one on the nonfiction list. Hey, we didn't pass it by. We reviewed it in the book review. Of course um, we did. <laughs> I love Carrie Fisher's books. I think she's, she was such a funny writer. I, I was a big fan of Postcards from the Edge. Um, and I I have not read Wishful Drinking, but I, I understand it was... Uh, I think not <laughs> many men picked up Surrender the Pink, I think, for title and cover alone. But Wishful John, Drinking is a great you... title. No, no, it, but it I'm is. curious. And then she did that. She did a book that I, I listened to, not in its entirety, on audio about her shock therapy that was also really wow. yeah, well, fascinating. Some of that Carrie Fisher is already there in this very young princess diarist, um, just in, in the notes that she took on the set. She was kind of brutally raw and honest um, about the voices in her head and um, kind of wanting to silence herself, but um, also in kind of the, the comedy um, that you'd see later on in, in the stuff. You know, she was, she was a talented writer. Speaking of talented writers, John, you're reading one of our favorites. Yes, and speaking of complex women, um, I'm reading Rachel Cusk's new novel, Transit, which comes out this month, and it's a follow-up to her previous novel, Outline, which was um, one of our 10 best books in 2015 and which I really loved. This is just like picking up right where Outline left off. It's narrated by the same woman whose name is Faye. Um, but she and, was like nearly nameless in the first one. They say her name exactly once I, in this I, book, which is really interesting. I think in, it was in the, the same first one in the first too, book. exactly yeah. once. So I think that's a strategy of type. Yeah. And it's it's funny because in this book, it's fairly late in the book, and it's just in this moment where there's a pause, and another character just sort of says Faye and puts <laughs> his hand on her hand, and um, it's a really interesting strategy. But she's mostly nameless, and mostly you see the world through these very mundane things she does. In this book, I forget the exact thing she does in outline, but in transit, um, the chapters are based around things like. She runs into an ex on the street. Um, she has a session with her hairstylist. She talks to the person who's renovating her building. Um, she sits on a literary panel and, and you know talks about what the other authors are saying. She's a writer. And she has a dinner at her cousin's house um, who recently left his wife and is now living with, with someone new and her children. The plot points are almost boring. Day <laughs> in the life. Purposely <laughs> boring. You know, just the, but what makes the book extraordinary is that it's the combination of these closely observed mundane things with these sudden bursts of sort of philosophical interrogation of things like freedom and parenthood and marriage and writing, and then go right back into the stream of just sort of observing other people and what, what they're telling her. There's a little bit of, you know, the way that people talk about Knausgaard, except this is much more exacting. I think it's more sharply written. It's really astonishing, I think. How about you, Greg? You have one of my favorites from last year in front of you. Yeah, so this is a book I, I mentioned uh, before the holidays that I would be reading this one over the holidays, and in fact I am. Uh, it's Paul Beatty's The Sellout. I'm I'm late to the game with this one. It was one of our 10 best. Um, and then, of course, it went on to become the first American Booker Prize winner. It's not a surprise to me because everyone has remarked on it, um, but it, it's very gratifying, especially for a book that um, has gotten as much acclaim as this one has and that's won you know, the prestigious Booker Prize, how much of a comedy it is. I feel like comic novels um, are often minimized in mm -hmm. their import. And it, it's very literary. It's very well written. Um, the, the language and the language play um, is of a very high level. Um, but the comedy is, I mean, the, he's, he's hilarious with, um, yeah, I really mean, both funny. kind of a, a very broad, sweeping, <laughs> satirical, scatological humor. <laughs> it's an absurdist novel, but it's one that uses its absurdities to point out actual um, societal absurdities, mm -hmm. um, all involving race. Um, so it's the criminal justice system. 
it kind of filters all of American society through a racial lens or looks at the way that American society itself has filtered things through a racial lens in ways that really don't make any sense at all. And it's absolutely just, it's completely scorched earth in terms of there's nobody who's safe in this box on either side of any issue. Just that, everybody gets <laughs> um, gets what's coming to them. That, that's all the exactly pieties right. are, are torn to the ground. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying that. That's what I've been spending my time with. Pamela, what have you been reading? I know you had a very rare, quiet week away from the office recently for the holidays. Uh, well, I, I want to show off a little bit because I'm always <laughs> such a slow reader. Um, but I I read uh, Robert Gottlieb's uh, memoir, Avid Reader, which I just cannot recommend enough. Um, he was on the podcast uh, last year talking about it. Um, Gottlieb, of course, is the longtime uh, editor-in-chief of Knopf um, and still an editor there. And then in between that, the editor of The New Yorker. And um, it's just a really, really fun gossipy, but also um, interesting book to read and for anyone who has written or edited um, either in magazines or books um, themselves or is interested in that process. Um, You get a sense of his approach to editing. um, And everyone that I've talked to since reading that book who's been edited by him just has said, yep, the best. Um, (laughs) So uh, I really recommend that book. Uh, and then I read a book that's a thriller coming out later this month, so I'm not going to talk about it uh, much until the, the critics have spoken, um, but that book was called The Girl Before by J.P. Delaney. And I read that because the um, author spoke about it at an author lunch that the publisher, um, Ballantyne, just Division of Random House, held back in the fall. And he had a really tragic personal story um, where one of his children. His first child uh, was born and subsequently died. And then his second child was born with a very rare syndrome um, that has all kinds of uh, health um, and cognitive implications, really severe, debilitating diagnosis. And he said that the book kind of grew out of that experience. And Mm. even though it's a psychological thriller, um, you can see see that throughout the book. So that was interesting to me. Is it a debut novel? It's It's not a debut. It's a pseudonym. He's written other books in a previous genre. I don't know his real name. And then the third book I read was um, The Children Act by Ian McEwen, Mm. which was also a book I picked up after hearing McEwen um, himself talk about it because he talked about how he sat in on a family court in the in London uh, for I don't know how long, but uh, I think quite some time because it, the, those experiences come through in the books um, about a woman who's a, a judge um, in family court in London. And, I, you know, anyone who's read Bleak House or interested in the law, just, you know, the books that take place in the legal system in the UK to me are really fascinating. Um So McEwen did all this research, and it shows in the book. I think he often takes a very journalistic approach to um, his fiction. And and that book got very polarizing uh, reviews. Um, We did not have favorable reviews for it. I think Michi reviewed it and gave it a fairly negative review. And then Deborah uh, Friedel, who's an editor at the London Review of Books, reviewed it for the book review, Mm -hmm. and that was also quite negative. I could see their criticism, um, but Ian McEwen is still such a good writer. This um, is the book about the Muslim family that the— they're refusing to give a blood transfusion to the daughter. Almost, um, except that they were Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, uh, so uh, a different, but it is um, it is a lot about the role that religion plays um, in these family court cases. Um, it opens up with an Orthodox Jewish couple who's divorced, and there are differing opinions on how their daughter should be educated. And each case that comes to family court in 
in the book um, has to do with um, the way in which religion can often uh, divide. And I'm now reading a book that I have wanted to read since talking about it on the podcast with Charlie Finch uh, last year. He did our Thrillers Roundup in the fall, and that book is The Fall Guy by James Lasden, which, Greg, you've read. Yeah, I, I really liked that book. So I will not give away any plot spoilers, mostly because <laughs> they have not yet been revealed to me. Um, but I will say that every review of this book has referred to it as a taut thriller. And I think that's the most interesting thing as a reader reading it, uh, besides the story, which is, is quite fun, which is that he packs so much in in such a tight space that it's just interesting to see how he does it. Um, it's, I don't know if you had that experience when you were reading it. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting that you're reading it right after McEwen because uh, McEwen, who also writes very kind of tightly plotted and elegant books, it, it's got a little bit of that feel. I think Charlie in his review even compared it to early uh, early Ian McEwen or late Patricia Highsmith. Mm-hmm. It's got that kind of louche feel yes. to it, um, the, the upper class um, setting, but the the outsider to that setting. It's also um, quite clearly takes place in Woodstock, New York, which is a town <laughs> that I've spent a lot of time in, um, down to every single detail so that you can, you, you know exactly what upscale restaurant he's talking to. You're like, oh, that's the bear. Um, and uh, he's got this great name for a bakery. Um, in the book, it's Early to Bread, um, which uh, in real life, it's bread alone. Um, so it's it's really really fun to see the way in which he plays with this uh, Woodstock setting. You guys are um, piquing my curiosity because the only thing I've read by him is a collection of short stories from about six or seven years ago, and it was they were really good and really well crafted, but definitely not thrillerish. All right. Uh, well, Greg, John, thanks so much for thanks, being here. Pamela. Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com/books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.